You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 31. Today, we're asking the question, do pre-surgery checklists improve patient safety? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. If you're a regular listener, then thanks for coming back. The podcast is produced every week, and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, what's today's question? Our specific question for today is, do pre-surgery checklists improve patient safety? But David, I'm hoping that we can actually have a more general discussion about checklists, even though the evidence we're looking at really only answers that one specific question. There are lots of checklist procedures and rules in safety. Uh, We talk about it a fair bit on the podcast and at other events we're at. And usually we tend to bundle all of these things together as administrative controls. And administrative control is kind of like a swear word in safety. It's usually the subtext is it's administrative and it doesn't really work. So a lot of this paperwork gets talked about in the same conversations as safety bureaucracy, safety clutter, safety paperwork. And one of the big fears that we had when we started talking about safety clutter was that people would just slash and burn all of the safety paperwork instead of working out what does and doesn't matter. And so the annoying thing is if people are much slower than we expected in getting rid of the clear clutter, but perhaps too ready to get rid of some things like checklists that in fact we shouldn't necessarily be getting rid of. Checklists are one of those things that have been associated with safety for a long time and associated in a way that gives them quite a good name. Perhaps the most well-known example is pilot pre-flight checklists. And I don't know any pilot who talks about that as mindless bureaucracy. It's almost part of professionalism to be ingrained in those checklists and to use them. But then the question comes, a lot of that aviation stuff gets copied into other industries. And a real particular arrow we can see is pointing from aviation towards healthcare. And so it's really worth asking, does a practice that seems to work well in one place really work that well? And certainly does it work well when it's translated? So we're not going to be looking at whether they work in aviation, but we are going to ask, do they work when they're translated into healthcare? Great overview, Drew. And there's actually lots of information on checklists out there. And there's actually lots of information on checklists in, in healthcare and safety, which we'll, we'll go through today. There's also uh, quite a popular book called The Checklist Manifesto, which is How to Get Things Right by Atul Dewandi, which um, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. And Drew, you and I recently, we wrote a chapter for the um, OHS Body of Knowledge, the Australian Professional um, Body of Knowledge titled Rules and Procedures for Safety, where we went through some of this checklist literature more broadly. But what we want to do today is actually talk about what the research says about the outcomes that are created by using checklists. In terms of healthcare, There's a sort of a general statistic that 5 to 10% of patients worldwide are exposed to some form of adverse event during the course of their hospital treatment. So this might be just the wrong dose or the wrong drug or the wrong timing or or the wrong procedure. So that that rate of kind of one in 10 is is thrown around a lot in when we talk about healthcare and hence why why I think the sectors look to to industries which have um, 
sort of much lower reported adverse outcomes and, and trying to see what they're doing. You pretty much can't pick up a paper about patient safety without it starting off with some sort of dodgy statistic about how many people in healthcare die due to preventable events. And there's a lot of reason to be sceptical about exactly what does and doesn't count as preventable and exactly what does and doesn't count as an error. But yeah, that's beside the point. Healthcare certainly is a very human-driven profession. And so there's going to be lots of opportunity for improvement if we can enhance human performance. And so the question is, do pre-surgery checklists enhance performance in a way that we can measure? And given that they're in a healthcare setting where their health is being closely monitored, there's a good chance that we can actually directly link from the action to the ultimate outcome for the patient. Yeah, the um, the laboratory is kind of all there in, in the hospital to observe and, and to measure. So what the healthcare sector has kind of done is look at all of these adverse events and decide in hindsight that many of those events were due to controllable actions of, of the people involved in the surgery. So that the healthcare, the healthcare professionals and the clinicians. So what happened, I think, it, it appears as though in the early 2000s, the World Health Organization globally published this surgical safety checklist, and there was a surgical patient safety system. And then in 2008, there was two separate studies in a total of 14 hospitals worldwide, which implemented, which who ran these studies, they implemented these surgical checklists and showed dramatic reductions in patient safety, negative adverse outcomes. So what happened then was, uh, I suppose there was some questioning by the practitioners on the effectiveness of the checklist. There was some questioning on the external validity of these results. And it seems Drew to have created a couple of years of a whole lot of research that went into checklists. So the papers that I'm going to, that I pulled out for us to talk about today, three of them, they're all published in that 2012, 2013 period, which is, you know, that couple of years after that World Health Organization, uh, global effort. So Drew, that's our question. Do pre-surgery checklists improve patient safety outcomes? Let's go on and talk about the papers. And I'm really keen to get your perspective on the way that these, they're all reviews. They're all reviews of the literature. There's no original research in any of these three papers. And I'm really interested to get your views on, on the way that the, the authors approach the, their different review studies. There was actually a lot of stuff, um, Drew, not in the safety journals, but you might be able to fill me in anyway, that there's um, a huge amount of medical and healthcare research that's published every year. The industry has got a obviously a long history of evidence-based practice and a lot of emphasis on research. So all of these studies were done by healthcare institutions or, or universities and published in healthcare-related journals. Do you see much healthcare uh, research coming into the more general safety science type of journals? We, we see some. There are actually sort of two categories of healthcare research. There's body of research that's basically done by doctors or by researchers closely aligned with doctors. And that tends to get published directly in medical journals or in safety versions of medical journals. And then there's a sort of second body of work, which is around nursing practice and around how healthcare work is done, which includes some of the occupational health and safety stuff to do with healthcare practice. And it tends to be sort of lower status, not as in lower quality, but just as in not considered real medicine. And so some of that finds its way more into the safety literature, just sort of to try to re regain the status and the respectability. So I'm, I'm not being critical there of either sort of body of research. 
Um, you can find great stuff in medical journals. You can find great stuff in nursing journals. You can find great medical stuff in safety journals. So I, I was pretty impressed about the amount of research there was and, and, and probably better quality research than we see a lot of times when we talk about the safety research. So article one was titled, The Effects of Safety Checklists in Medicine, a Systematic Review. So published in 2013 in the Journal of Anesthesiologica Scandinavia. Four authors, Tomlinson, Storson, Stoffland, and Pratero. And they're all, um, all Norwegian, all at a university hospital uh, in Bergen. And so here's what they did, Drew. They, they went and searched a whole heap of different databases for um, checklists and, and medicine, and they came back with nearly 7,500 uh, hits against their criteria. They shortlisted that to 114 studies based on the title and abstract, and then they reviewed those 114 papers and ended up, ended up including 34 of those articles in their review. So they, they had 34 papers. They split them up into four different categories. At this point, they weren't just specifically looking at patient safety outcomes. They were really looking at what's the relationship between checklists and safety in medicine. So seven of these articles had hard patient safety outcome measures, which means they were looking at the relationship between the checklist and patient safety or patient safety outcomes. Six of the articles were about adherence to guidelines. So what's the relationship between having a checklist and complying with uh, medical practice requirements? 16 articles were categorized as human factors. So this is where they were looking at the relationship between checklists and mistakes by clinicians. And five articles were categorized as adverse events. And this is the relationship between the checklist and an unplanned situation um, during the surgery, whether the result of a mistake or not just an unplanned situation. So, so Drew, these four different types of categories. So starting without a really clear question with a systematic review and then just basically creating some categories based on the articles you've got. How common is that kind of an approach to, to a review like this? So one of the approach that they like to do in medicine is to very clearly define the end point that they're measuring for and then just reject everything that doesn't match that end point. So you get some very uniform, easily comparable studies if you say, okay, we're only interested in a very specific checklist and we're only interested in studies that have measures of mortality as the outcome. Uh, but if they'd done that, they would have only had seven articles at most. And I'm not actually certain that all seven of those measure mortality because a couple of them are sort of more about complications rather than specific death as an outcome. And, and so having the broader one lets you cover these broader range of things. It also sometimes lets you claim credit even if you don't have good outcome measures, though. But I think in this case, we should actually expect the bias to be the other way. So if an organisation introduces a checklist and starts enforcing that checklist, then if there's any bias, it would be towards categorising more things as mistakes or more things as adverse events. You wouldn't expect the checklist to cause things that previously weren't were counted as errors to stop being counted as errors. You'd expect it to accidentally drive the apparent number up. So I think we'd expect to see the error the other way. And so if we see that a checklist actually reduces the number of times they've decided that someone's committed a violation, then that's actually a, probably a real effect that's happening. Thanks. That's a good explanation, Drew, of, of the process. So what did they find when they reviewed these 34 studies? So four of the 34 had statistically significant reductions in post-surgery mortality. So did the person die as a result of the surgery or shortly after? Six studies showed a significant decrease in post-surgery complications. 
And then 16 studies look also at these secondary outcomes of the checklist. So what's the relationship between checklists and communication, team performance, the understanding of daily goals, information flows, perception of safety, safety attitudes, and safety behaviors. Some of the results, Drew, that are reported in this from the individual studies were, were quite amazing. Now, the, the rider on this is that the individual study quality was quite variable, but just the headline results, um, like, you know, in, in reducing mortality by 50% from like 1.5% of procedures down to 0.8%, and having similar size effects to do with complications um, and adverse events. Things like equipment failure decreasing from 87% to 47%. So incidents were generally involving equipment, which kind of makes sense. If the checklist involves you to check that the equipment's serviceable at the start of the procedure, then you're probably less likely to find that it's not working when you need it during the procedure. So some of these seem obvious, but the effects are, are really large. David, did you happen to look up that one about the equipment failure incidents? I didn't go to the original papers, Drew, no. No, n- neither have I. I'm just looking at it now and thinking, good grief, do you really want to go into surgery where 87% of the time they discover during surgery that oh. something is not working? And if that suddenly reduces to 47%, is that like, you know, they've checked and remembered to change the batteries? I think, um, sorry, sorry, Drew, um, that's, a, that's, that's an issue with my, with my note taking. So of the overall adverse events, 87% of those adverse events were related to equipment failure. It wasn't 87% of the time something doesn't work. Oh, right. Excellent. So, so good, good clarification. And, and just goes to show even between Drew and I, who are normally on the same page with our notes, you really got every time you put a number down, you've really got to be careful of the context that you put it down in. So then these other things, other aspects, these secondary uh, outcomes also, you know, quite quite dramatically improved, you know, communication failures reduced. Information loss was a was an interesting one, Drew, that without a checklist, one in five surgeries suffers from information loss. So test results go missing or information about patient history goes missing and things like that. And that goes from like 20% of cases down to 3% of cases with the introduction of the checklist. So so lots of lots of stuff um, being reported as as positively improving with the introduction of a checklist. One of the interesting things is um, the story of the time it takes. So how much time does it take to do the checklist? And one of the studies actually had, had measured this and and when they implemented the checklist, the average time from what they call admission to incision, so when they put someone in the operating theatre until they start cutting, increased from 23 minutes to 29 minutes. So you're talking about a 25% increase there in preparation time by incorporating the checklist. Yeah, that's what I love to hear is the doctors um, racing to make sure they make that first cut before the 30-minute mark. Um, just like, you know, you order at Pizza Hut where there's a text starts flashing red, you know, if you don't cut, you've failed to meet your daily goal. Yeah, I'd, I'd much rather that be taking out the um, extra six minutes. And what I particularly like is that there's a lot of consistency here between the type of mechanism of improvement and the claims in end results. It's not just your know, random safety, it's some specific types of things that are being improved. And they're types of things that it's very plausible that you would see from a checklist. We'll talk about why we think that this works well um, towards the end of the podcast. But I agree, Drew, like things like having serviceable equipment, having the information I need to make decisions in relation to the patient, checking that all of the all of the pre-surgery checks have been done. You can see that this this direct relationship between, like you say, the mechanism that the checklist is prompting and the safety of the work. Um, and I think that's an important takeaway we'll come back to at the end. 
In moving on to the next paper, I think it's worth pointing out the sort of final thing that the authors say in this one is they basically conclude that the evidence in favour of checklists is so good that really we've got a much more interesting research question, which is why do some people not like checklists? Why does everyone not love them and want them in place? And that was sort yeah. of the, the further question then is, you know, if they're so good, then how come they're not universally loved? Yeah, and I think it, it, it was written in the paper in a way that seemed to kind of baffle the researchers when they had done the work and they just said, like, the evidence is so clear. Why do all healthcare workers not embrace the idea of safety checklists? Why don't, you know, why don't they love them? So we'll talk about that um, a bit further. Andrew, you mentioned very specific uh, research or systematic reviews that go on in healthcare. And so so what I wanted to do is, like, I didn't want to just stick with that one with that one paper because it was very compelling, but I, you know, there was, there was lots of different studies, lots of different qualities. So I just, and I got a bit interested in checklists to be perfectly honest. So I kept, um, I kept having a read and I found a, a meta-analysis and we've talked about them on the podcast before where you get a group of studies, which are asking a similar question and designed in a similar way. And you pool all of the data and you, you reconduct the analysis um, with a much larger data. So you're almost turning seven studies in this case into one really big study. Um, and so this title was called A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of the Effect of the World Health Organization's Surgical Safety Checklist on Post-Operative Complications. Now, sorry, Drew, but if you've got nine authors on the paper, then we don't have time on the podcast to read to read out the names, but they're all from Belgium universities and medical institutions. And it was published in 2013 in the British Journal of Surgery. Drew, nine authors on a paper? getting everyone's publication counts up or what's going on there? If it's a physics paper, you can sort of imagine the role that everyone's had. But a systematic review where they ended up only needing to look at seven studies and do statistics around it. Uh, so you can imagine you know, one person going through and finding the studies and filtering them, a second person checking their work, third person helping out with the statistics, fourth person running the lab, Fifth person happened to to work down the corridor. Sixth person is a friend of the fifth person. Yeah, yeah. There gets a point where you begin to be get a bit sceptical. Yeah. So this systematic review. Look, they started with seven hundred and twenty three studies, and they selected seven. So they had very specific criteria. Drew, like you said earlier, they wanted it needed to be quantitative. It needed to be either a randomised controlled trial, a controlled before and after study, interrupted time series, or repeated measure studies. It needed good quantitative measurement over time with uh, with an intervention. And they were specifically looking at the impact of the WHO, the World Health Organization checklist, not just any any sort of checklist. And they they it had to study post-operative complications and include mortality. So they excluded these studies if it only addressed a particular issue. Like you said, Drew, if they if it was a study that looked at the checklist but was only looking at, say, infection rates post-surgery was excluded. It wanted any complication. So when they there's pages and pages of statistics, most of which I don't understand in the paper, Drew, um, I must admit. But of those, basically they what they worked out is that um, when they combined all of these studies, together there was 8,429 post-surgery complications before the checklist and 6,769 complications afterwards. So somewhere like 20% uh, reduction across all of the studies when they looked at 30-day mortality rates. And then complications that included things like infection, blood loss, unplanned return to surgery, pneumonia, and those types of complications. 
they also measured a lot of the stu the studies measured adherence to the checklist so they also wanted which was one of the other criteria that i didn't mention is that each of the studies had to assess um, adherence to the checklist so not just we have a checklist in our hospital but the frequency and completeness of people using that checklist and concluded that half of the studies had good completion and half the studies had bad and the ones that had the good completion of the checklist had a greater reduction in complications so this review provided some pretty strong conclusions and statistics but at the very end um drew i'm interested in your thoughts about this at the very end the authors say yeah but we probably can't regard this as definitive proof in the absence of higher quality studies so like any meta-analysis they said ah oh, we'd, we'd still like to have better studies yeah i kind of suspect that what's going on here is it's really hard to decide two different things at once and once you've decided that better adherence to the checklist leads to better outcomes, then you've got to be cautious about taking credit for any studies that have got poor adherence to the checklist. And so that's the trouble here is that they've decided that you know, we can see this apparent pattern that as you follow the check, as you do more and more following of the checklist, you get better and better outcomes. But if we filter out all the ones that had poor adherence, then we don't get our overall underlying figure statistically significant that having the checklist improves outcomes. And, and so I, I don't think we should take cautious statements like that as denial of a clear pattern. You know, the, the best evidence is it seems to work, but don't assume that that's a slam dunk. We can always try to get better evidence than the current best evidence. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so if, if listeners can follow, follow my, train of thought or my path of research on this, I, I went and got the first paper that looked at, okay, impacts on patient safety and then a whole range of other factors that are related to patient safety. Went and tried to get the harder numbers by getting the meta-analysis paper, which was looking at kind of like just how significant is that impact on, on patient safety outcomes. And both of the papers talked about compliance and adherence. So I went and got a third paper, which was another systematic review, and it was titled a systematic review of the effectiveness, compliance, and critical factors for implementation of safety checklists in surgery. So if we know that checklists, well, I think we can say that we know that checklists improve patient safety outcomes with the caveat of when they're used and when they're followed, then we need to understand when and how they're used and followed and what some of the issues are. Um, like we mentioned earlier, this is the really interesting question, If Drew, if the evidence is strong that it improves quality of work and safety, then why isn't compliance really, really easy. So this paper was published in the Annals of Surgery. The, another systematic review started with nearly 5,000 articles, shortlisted down to 84 that they did a full read of, and then 22 were included in the review. Interestingly, Drew, in the review, because they were looking at checklist compliance and that the findings in these studies ranged from 12% compliance to 100% compliance. So they went, so there were studies of hospitals which had like 12% completion rates um, or, or use rates on the checklist and other hospitals had 100% with an average of 75%. That's a huge range of compliance for very similar checklists in very similar processes in very similar operating environments. Or it's a huge range in honesty of people about how often they properly complete the checklist. Yes, yes, it could well be. And, and, you raise a really good point of those 22 studies. A number of them were interview-based, which is asking people how often they do things. Some of them were real-time observation-based. Some of them were document uh, documentation reviews. So you're right, Drew. The quality or accuracy of the data, depending on how the data was gathered, can have a can have a big impact here as well. 
Although I think it is fairly indicative in one sense, in that a lot of these studies, the safety team or the people responsible for the checklist are also part of doing the study. So if people tell you that they hate your checklist, then regardless of whether they're doing it because they actually never complete the checklist or they're just trying to send a message to you about how much they hate doing the checklist, you still got to take that 12% rate as people really, really don't find this helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Which is still really interesting. So so maybe that's a good question. Why don't they find it helpful? And we're, we're just about to get to that when we do the practical takeaways. But in this last paper, 15 of the studies evaluated compliance with the checklist. So really looking at this frequency of use and completeness of, of the checklist in terms of a records point of view. So here's what they here's what they concluded from these studies. So success of the implementation of a checklist and its compliance levels is higher when it's led by a multidisciplinary team. So a team that involves the users of the checklist as well as the designers of the checklist as well as supervisors and managers, like organisations use working groups or or, um, or group of change champions or something like that. Um, involving a multidisciplinary team in the implementation process is going to lead to greater compliance rather than when it's just mandated by a single person from a from a manager or from a safety department. Um, discussion about common cause events and how the checklist relates to preventing them was kind of really important, Drew. It seems that getting people together and talking about what goes wrong in surgery and what are the common causes of the things going wrong and then showing how the checklist checks for those things that can be common causes can really help people understand the connection between, let's just say, I mean, right here directly, the connection between the safety work and the safety of work. You know, when people can see that this, me checking this is going to mean that this is not going to happen during the process, uh, really increases compliance. And I think this one needs to be read in conjunction with that previous one about the multidisciplinary team. Because it's not just about you, one person comes up with a checklist and then explains to everyone else why it's important. It's if you can't convince a multidisciplinary team that this belongs on the checklist because they all agree that there's a clear link between this item and a particular accident that they all know about, then you don't get to put it on the checklist. And so having that needing to explain and justify results in shorter checklists as well as people who understand the checklist better. Yeah, Drew, you described there exactly our um, our test for consensus in the in the safety clutter paper, which is that you know do all stakeholders agree that this is at, this adds value and is necessary? And absolutely, it it seems to have a real impact. So so this paper talks about the why and the how. So so why should people use checklists, and then how should they complete it? And I think that's a really good framework um, to think about checklists and and checklist compliance, which is why, which is. Is it, does the person even feel like it's their role to take care of the items in the checklist that they need to check off? And do they feel that it connects to, to safety risks associated with their work? So if I feel responsible for it and I feel that it's important from a risk, then there's my, there's my why. But then the how is really important. Do I know how? Have I, have I got the information I need? Have I got the resources? Have I got the time? Like Drew, for example, when you know the extra six minutes. If I don't get an extra six minutes added to the surgery schedule, then it's really hard for me to... Uh, to add the extra six minutes in to do the checklist. And I know that um, pilots feel that way with, um, with plane turnarounds, with a delayed landing and then a, then a non-scheduled takeoff. You know, sometimes they just physically don't have the time to do all the checks that they're meant to do. So that why and how is a, is a good framework for people to, to think about. Drew, in terms of, we might just go straight on to practical takeaways if, if you're happy to do that. Sure, sure. There's one last thing that I'd like to mention about the findings 
And that is that one thing that you don't get with this sort of study is talking about the power dynamics. And that I, I think a, a lot of people in healthcare don't like to acknowledge the class and power issues that arise, particularly when it's around things like surgery, where you have multidisciplinary teams, uh, where you have doctors, you have nursing staff, you have allied healthcare staff, you have anesthesiologists who are doctors, but are their own sort of special class. And when we talk about socio-technical systems, what we mean is that things like a checklist then become a technology that feeds into these pre-existing relationships and how the work happens. And so, you know, we can think of checklists as a very straightforward thing, that they are simply we're marking off items and that acts as a barrier to prevent against hazards. I really suspect what's going on here is a lot more complicated, that this is actually a tool that allows people to interrupt. It's a tool that allows people to talk to people in higher positions of authority and to slow things down if they need to or to stop them pushing ahead when they don't feel safe to push ahead. So none of that contradicts the value of the checklist, but um, the value may be coming in ways that are more than the obvious. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective, Drew. I think power and authority gradients, and that is, is you know, it's talked about a lot in healthcare, it's talked about a lot in aviation and other sectors. It might be a good topic for a future podcast because I know that there's um, there's some studies in aviation which has looked at challenge in the cockpit based on seniority and, and, all of, and, and those types of uh, demographic type factors and, and makeup of the crew factors and checklists can really help provide a common um, language and a, and a mechanism to to have that to, to get past that that power gradient so, so that's it let's jump straight into the practical takeaways and then the most important one I think is that this is a activity where if used in the right type of situations in this type of situation we're talking about pre-surgery checklists can be a good and useful safety tool I think that's just the first simple takeaway is don't think, oh, this is paperwork, this is tick and flick, therefore this is not helpful. Yeah, Andrew, so so let's talk really targetly at the development of a checklist. So the items on the checklist and how it gets integrated into the work and the workplace. So making sure the items on the checklist match the real and agreed safety risks um, and the process that's that's being undertaken. Not having any redundant items. Having redundant items on there distract from the important items and we know that from the clutter research that if you actually take away the stuff that's not important and just leave the stuff that is important then you'll get better quality and better compliance of the stuff that's remaining so short simple straightforward um, if you want to have team-based understanding of the checklist uh, one of the risks is is if you want to create conversation around the checklist some of the studies have talked about putting the checklist up on the wall in like poster size uh, in the operating theater and actually having the operating team stand around the poster and actually go through the checklist together. So, so thinking about the medium as well when you develop it. So what's on it, but also then, you know, how that medium is communicated in the way that it's going to be used in the workplace. And I didn't mind that as an idea, Drew, to actually create a team-based conversation around the checklist rather than one person holding a clipboard. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to what works best, but I agree absolutely that Checklist design isn't just about thinking about what items are there. It's thinking about how are people going to use this, who is going to be able to see it as they go through it, who's going to lead the process, who's going to be part of the process. And so if you're going to put a checklist uh, into part of your process, participation and agreement of the whole team um, is really important. The benefits, uh, the coaching and the feedback and the education that goes along with it, the time and the resources and all of those things. So, so I think simply 
in safety sometimes, Drew, we just develop a checklist and throw it over the fence. But the research here would recommend you don't do that. You actually take the time to figure out how long it's going to take, how it's going to work into the process, whether people can do it. And I, I think what I'm learning most in the podcast, Drew, as I'm going through a lot of this research is the care and attention that you should put into every single thing that you try to do to intervene in the workplace is much greater than I ever kind of probably worried about throughout my career. You know, just implementing one checklist, five items into a into a surgery or something like that should be done as a really, really big project. If you're thinking about that six minutes and how that is valuably spent every time someone goes into surgery, that's a heck of a lot of time. If it's five minutes, if it's seven minutes, that makes a difference, not just in the overall efficiency, but in whether it's actually going to get done and done properly. And then if you're going to use that time every single time, you really want to get maximum value out of it. Absolutely, Drew. And and one other point that I wanted your perspective on, Drew, when I looked at this WHO checklist, it actually contains 22 items and they talk about it as just this surgical safety checklist as if it's like one thing, but it's actually split split into three sections. There's there's seven questions that are done before anesthesia. So before, obviously, the the patient is um, put to sleep. And then they do the next 10 questions on the checklist before they do the first skin incision. So after the... um, anesthesia is taking its effect, then they go through the next 10 items and then they do their surgery. And then there's five items on the checklist which get done before the patient leaves the operating room. You know, have we accounted for everything and have we sewn up everything that we needed to? And I thought that's really interesting. There's actually three separate checklists designed in that sort of critical phases of, of the work as a way of planning, you know, the risk controls for the next short phase of work. And it's kind of different to um, how we think about checklist in the general workplace. It's not in aviation. There's a pre-flight checklist and probably a pre-landing checklist and things like that. But normally we just have like a pre-start checklist, which is do this once at the start of the day and then get on and do your day's work. So I thought this was really a really important distinction between a general checklist and a really task-specific checklist. Yeah. What struck me was just how proximate the checks are to the actual critical moment. So one of the things that we've noticed with things like uh, vehicle checklists is they're built into the pre-start, and that's not necessarily the right time to do it. Some of the things that you're checking about the vehicle are irrelevant until you actually get on site and start doing a particular operation. Operators might find it hard to do that check until they get to site. And so a checklist that's just before you start everything can be fairly irrelevant. But if you think of work, pretty much any job has these really critical moments And if you get things right at those moments, everything else flows neatly. Um, So for surgery, you know, it's just before you put the patient under, it's just before you make the first cut. If you're doing mechanical work, it's making sure that everything is isolated right at that moment, just before you physically start work. It's making sure all the tools and test wraps and stuff are removed before you start closing up. And so if you identify when those critical moments are, that's when something like a checklist can really support making things safer. Andrew, if we think about safety work versus the safety of work, this is where I think that that conversation just there is 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 exactly the 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 distinction and the conversation that we wanted to make with with that model and and that paper, which is that safety gets improved when you actually make physical changes to the task or the tools or the work activity. So if the checklist is prompting physical checks and physical changes and physical setup practices for for the work, then 
this is where we're seeing in all of this research, this connection between the, the safety work process, like the checklist, and the safety of work, like the patient safety outcomes. And I just think that we talk a lot about this podcast, but this is almost like the perfect example of what we've been talking about most of the way through. Uh, so here's a useful test. David, you've been looking at the WHO checklist a fair bit as you went through preparing for this episode. Is there any item on that checklist where if the item can't be ticked, the team can't take immediate action? Well, I suppose that would be the assumption. You mean take immediate action to correct it? Uh, or to correct it or either or to stop stuff going ahead. There's something that they can do. So I think that's the danger if you get checklists wrong is you go through and, okay, I've got seven items here and four of them are everyone has been properly trained. <laughs> and, like, you know, if, if the answer is no, there's nothing you can do about it. So the answer is very much yes. So so something like is all of the surgical equipment sterilised? So if it's, if it's not or if there's a problem, then the crew can just go and get a fresh lot of sterilised surgical equipment. So there is definitely the opportunity and means to get the things in place that are on those checklists. And I think that's what you're asking about. Yeah, I think that's a great checklist where if, if the answer is no, then very quickly the answer will be, oh, it is now. <laughs> I fixed yes. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's almost like a, um, and I know this is, this is being done in, in a number of other industries like um, critical steps, critical states um, through sort of work activities and, and how to make sure that the critical things are in place. Drew, invitations for our listeners. I'd kind of like to know how our listeners are using checklists as part of their safety management activities and success stories or, or, or problems that they're seeing with checklists because we talk a lot about rules and procedures and, and other admin things. But until I started reading about this in the last week, I, I hadn't thought about you know checklists as a very specific thing to use. And I actually think they're more interesting than procedures. Yeah, no, I'm inclined to agree. And I would love to hear stories, not just about checklists in general, but use specific checklists and specific items. You want something that you've been really glad was on a checklist because of the right, you know, the right item and the right check at the right time. You think you know, saved your life or saved someone else's life. And yeah, what are your horror stories, checklists that you think are irrelevant, take up time, don't help you out? Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of planes around the world that haven't taken off because something's been wrong on the pre-flight checklist. So I think there's a lot of people who um, who might have had their lives saved without without necessarily knowing it um, just by a checklist. Surgery as well, by the look of these numbers that we've talked about today, there's a lot of people who've had operations, maybe some of our listeners had, that have kind of been helped along by a checklist in the operating room. So Drew, today we asked the question, do pre-surgery checklists improve patient safety outcomes? The short answer? Oh, you're asking me? Um, yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Evidence is not definitive, but it all points in the same direction. That uh, There are a number of mechanisms, a number of intermediate outcomes that get improved, and a number of long-term mortality or morbidity outcomes that get improved. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send us a review or any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 